Well, if you've been paying attention to the news lately, uh, you've probably picked up on a story that's regained a lot of energy since last year. Last year, there was a very tragic incident where an off-duty officer in Dallas, Texas, came home from a shift, and she parked in the uh, parking lot of her apartment complex, and then she went to her apartment, to which she found the, gar- or the apartment door open, and then she saw an intruder in her apartment and opened fire, fatally killing a man inside. Of course, if you've been following the story, you realize when she came home, she did not park on her floor. She was on the wrong floor, and then she went to the wrong apartment. And what she ended up doing was actually murdering uh, unarmed accountant named uh, Botham Jean. And uh, that happened a year ago. And it picked up a lot of energy this week because Wednesday, uh, that woman, Amber Geiger, uh, was in court to be sentenced. And so the news was following this. And as you uh, probably have seen online, if you've been watching the news, uh, something very extraordinary happened uh, in that moment. And I don't want to take away from it, but I want to uh, show a clip that some of you have already seen where Brant Jean, uh, Botham's younger brother, who's 18 years old, did something that was just uh, unbelievable in that moment as he was giving his victim's testimony and he extended great forgiveness to Amber who took the life of his brother. So here's just a few of the little clips that come out of that situation. Uh, please listen to what he says. Then, of course, the gesture that everyone uh, this week has been talking about as the clip went viral. I know I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die. I want the best for you. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. This moment was absolutely stunning as Brent Jean was not only willing to forgive and extend the statements of forgiveness to Geiger for taking the life of his older brother, but then the gesture of wanting to just embrace her in that moment of compassion and forgiveness. And what Brent did there was to demonstrate one of the most difficult teachings we have ever received from our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's the teaching to love our enemies. And you look at the moment that we just witnessed on that clip, and what took place isn't going to bring back both of them. It did not erase the pain that the family has and is experiencing. It didn't minimize what Geiger did that night or remove consequences for her actions, but it did bring a ray of light into a very dark situation. It did redeem a little bit the difficulty of that moment. And it left a lot of people kind of scratching their heads in amazement as to what would lead this 18-year-old young young man to say things like, I forgive you, I love you just like any other person, I personally want the best for you, 
I don't wish anything bad on you. And the most amazing statement he said is that the best would be to give your life to Christ. And Brant Jean demonstrated this stunning kind of love that Jesus has called all Christians to live out. Now Brant acted uh, out of love in the situation and loving his enemy is something that we've seen over Christian history for hundreds of years. We just don't always have a camera to capture the moments when this has taken place. But this is a teaching that Jesus has given us to love our enemies. And with that in mind, I want to take us to a passage in the Bible where we see this command from Jesus to love our enemies. You can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6 with me. We're going to start in verse 27. I do want to remind you that what we're about to look at is actually a command from Jesus. It's not an idea. It's not a piece of advice. It's not a suggestion. It's actually a command that the Savior is giving His children to follow if they're going to associate with Him. And if we find ourselves following this command, it will be this stunning kind of love in us that's demonstrating the power of Christ in our lives. And so let's find ourselves in Luke chapter 6. And we're going to start with verse 27. And what we see here is that Jesus is on a, a level... Uh, plateau of some sort or some, some level place here. He's got a crowd of thousands around him. He's teaching. And this is what he says in this section. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. And we're just going to stop there. I say to you to hear. He's saying that both as a challenge to those who can audibly hear him in that moment, but even more so those who have ears to hear. A heart to receive this very difficult teaching that Jesus is now putting forth. For those who have ears to hear, and then he says, love your enemy. Here what we see is Jesus is telling us what he wants us to do. He wants us to love our enemy. Now we're in a series called Against the Grain right now. And, and we're looking at these teachings of Jesus that go against the grain of what we want to do based on our own emotions and feelings and our own will even. It goes against the grain of what our world's telling us is acceptable and okay and what to follow, what our culture is telling us is okay and acceptable and what to follow. And so this is definitely a teaching that goes against the grain to actually love your enemy. And that's what Jesus is telling us to do. Now I want to just break this down for a little bit. Let's look at this word love. Because I don't want us to miss the, the significance of this word. This is the Greek word agape. And agape love is not based on emotions. It's not based on feelings. It's not based on how likable the other person is. It's not based on how um, their, their personality is. It's not based on their character even. Agape love is a love of the will that I'm going to willfully pursue the best for this person. It's a desire to want and pursue what's best for the other person. And it's the type of love that God has for us. Like when you think about the love of God, the, the love of God is stunning. Like he loves you, he loves me in a stunning way, and he gives us this agape, and we can't just muster up this kind of love on our own. It has to be given to us. And so really the only way that we can give away agape kind of love is that we need to learn how to receive it. And so you have to go to the source. You can't love, you can't agape someone else until you know what it's like to be agape, to be loved like that. And that's how God loves us. And this is a love that's very different than the love of the world. 
that's based on emotions and warm fuzzies or just, you know, the, 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 the posturing of another person. It's, it's a love that God's called us to use and aim toward our enemies. Now, do you have anyone in your life that you would call enemies? I mean, what are the kind of people that come to your mind when you think about an enemy? Now, an enemy for the original audience, for these early Christians, might have been hostile Jewish religious leaders. It would have been Roman leaders. It would have been Roman soldiers. It would have been anybody in their life that was difficult, adversarial, oppressive. And as you continue to read through the passage, you'll see even people who were non-friends, that were beggars, borrowers, people that came into your life, Jesus is clumping them together in this enemy category. And to clarify something, Jesus has called us as Christians to, in John 13, 34, you find this, to love one another as he's loved us. So toward our fellow believers, we're to love one another. Now, if we're loving one another as Jesus has loved us as Christian to Christian, then it would be hard to classify any of us as enemies because if we're living that out, we wouldn't be adversarial with one another. But when you really get a sense for what Jesus is teaching here, he's talking about those outside the faith, those who do not know Christ that are adversarial to us. And so it's to love our enemy. So again, who would you consider an enemy. Who comes to mind? Are you thinking of someone who has polar opposite political views and now uh, is, you can't be friends anymore? Uh, are you thinking of people who are too liberal or too conservative for your liking? Is it someone who's been racist with you? Uh, is it, sadly, some of you, when you think about an enemy, might be thinking about parents or kids or siblings or some family member or maybe a former friend? Some of you might be thinking of a boss or a coworker, or that neighbor, or maybe it's the person who cut you off on the way to church this morning. I don't know. But there's some sort of adversarial relationship. And so we might not use the word enemy. That might not be, you know, when we say enemy, we might not be thinking of people that way, but be thinking about people here that, um, you know, because all, we all have experienced are experiencing or will experience these kinds of people, people who are adversarial, who constantly work against us, uh, who bully us, they seek our harm, or they've hurt us, but there's no remorse for the hurt they've caused. These are the kind of people that will be coming to our minds. And when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's talking about loving those people. And I want you to think about one person in particular. I mean, hopefully you don't have a big list. But, as you think about the people that would kind of fit this category as adversarial people in your life, just for the time being, just narrow it down to one for our time together. And what Jesus is saying to you is to love that person. That is against the grain, is it not? We're to love that person. That's what Jesus is saying. And when we do this, when we obey this command, it's demonstrating the power of, of Jesus Christ living in us. It's demonstrating Christ in our lives because we don't want to love our enemies. We, we want harm to those who have harmed us. We want the people to hurt us to hurt. That's what goes on inside the human heart. And so we really can't muster up this kind of love like we're talking about. It has to be something Christ does in us and then through us. And so Jesus tells us what to do. What is it that he's told us to do? What is it? Love our enemies. You do not sound convinced. <laughs> what has Jesus told us to do? Love our enemies. And then he helps us. He helps us. He goes, let me give you three ways that you can act this out. And this is what I love. Jesus isn't telling us how to feel. He's not saying, I want you to, to, to feel love 
for your enemies. I mean, that would be a win. That's definitely evidence of a transformed heart. But he's saying, it's not, he's not telling us how to feel, he's telling us how to act. And then he gives us three actions, three ways we can actually live this out. He says, let's look at verse 27 again. He says, but I say to you to hear, love your enemies. And then he says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So he gives us three action points. He says to do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So go back to that person that might be on your mind. What Jesus is calling you to do is to do good to that person. He's, he's calling you to bless that person. He's calling you to pray for that person. This goes against the grain, doesn't it? It sure does. Now, uh, that's pretty simple. Love your enemies. You need to do good to them. You need to bless them. You need to pray for them. I think we're done here. Let's pray. Go live this out. Here we go. If only that, it was that easy, right? If only it was that easy. Let's, let's, let's dig a little deeper. Let's, let's look at these three action steps. Do good to those who hate you. And we just have to take this at face value. This is action. Jesus meant, us, meant for us to do good works, good actions toward those who are adversarial to us. So what tangible actions can you take, can you do good um, to this person who is adversarial to you? Now notice, this is not reactive, this is proactive. Jesus didn't say, wait for them to do something bad to you and then respond with good. Now that's definitely part of the calling, but he says, do good to those who hate you. This means we strike first. We strike with good first. So we don't wait for them to kind of come around. We take the initiative to go and do good to those who are adversaries in our lives. And and, and the best example of that is Jesus, right? Did Jesus hang out in heaven waiting for us to get our mess together, and once we did, then he came to us? Because the Bible teaches that until we come into relationship with Christ, we're actually his enemy. The the way we want to live our life in rebellion, the way we want to basically just give God a middle finger and say, leave me alone, and I'm just going to do my life, that's an adversarial relationship. So what did Jesus do? He came to us. He was proactive. Jesus coming down, God in the flesh, and going to the cross and dying for our sins was God being proactive and doing good to us when we needed it. Didn't we need it? Oh, we needed it. And so he did good to us. And so what action can you carry out in a proactive way to do good to those who are adversaries? Because in our gut, we don't want to. But Jesus has called us to it. And so that person at work, pick them up a coffee that day or, or bring, the, bring them a lunch. Or maybe it's that neighbor. If it's that neighbor, bring in their trash can or lend a hand next time you see them out doing something around the house. Or I cringe, I'm about to say this because the season's coming. Snow shovel, you know. Get the snow shovel out and actually shovel snow for that person. This is doing good to those people. Maybe it's that family member. We'll run that errand for them. Do them a favor. Pick up that item at the store. Drop off a nice treat. Watch their kids. Whatever it takes. That person who's adversarial in your life. God's given you the ability to be creative. God's given you the ability to take initiative. Now he's calling you to act upon it. Do good. And if we do good to those who hate us, it's returning hate with a stunning kind of love that will demonstrate the work of Christ, the power of Christ in our lives. He also tells us to bless those who curse us. Now, blessing and cursing here uh, are specifically speaking to our speech. 
This is a matter of words. It's not like, oh, I gave them a plate of cookies. I blessed them. No, that's do good. This is blessing through our words. So we're to return a verbal curse with a verbal blessing. Now, to curse someone in this context means to speak evil to them, to speak evil about them, to speak evil upon them, to wish evil upon another person. So we experience this when we encounter people who are verbally hostile. They're venomous with the words. They will take your name. They'll take the name of anybody you love, including God, and they will just uh, vomit all sort of this arsenal of verbal hatred upon you. So we're not talking about losing your cool in a moment. We're not talking about a moment where you just say some things that you don't, really don't mean in anger and then you, you repent. And that's, we're talking about a regular stance. A person who's regularly speaking to you this way or typing to you this way if we're to extend it to that. And so Jesus tells us to bless this person, which is to do the opposite verbally. So we speak kindness back to them. We return insults with verbal grace. We speak well to them. We speak well about them. We speak well over them. And so this doesn't mean that we never stand up for ourselves and we never stand up for what's right. It just means that when we're attacked verbally, we refuse to uh, respond by attacking them back verbally. You know, Romans twelve fourteen says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. First Peter 3, 9, we're told, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on, this contrary, on the contrary, bless for this you were called and that you may obtain a blessing. And so Christ has given us this ability not only to remain silent when we should remain silent, but actually to return a verbal attack with verbal grace, with verbal good, with a verbal blessing. And when we do that, it's a stunning kind of love. It's not what's expected. It catches people off guard. And it will be a demonstration of the power of Christ at work in our lives. So, Jesus tells us to love our enemies. He says, you know, here's three ways you can do it. One way, you do good to them. Second, you bless them. The third way, he says, is pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, the original word in the Greek for abuse here is the word epereazo. And if you're using an English Standard Version Bible, an ESV, it says the word abuse, but the, the deeper meaning of this word is to be mistreated, to be slandered, uh, to be insulted. I think we need to unpack that because abuse is a trigger word for us. It's a, it's a heavy word. Because some of you, when you've thought about enemies in your life, you've thought about someone who maybe physically abused you, sexually abused you, uh, maybe verbally, mentally, emotionally abused you. And we, we don't want to get people confused on this matter. Now, uh, does Jesus want you to love that abuser who's your enemy? Well, I don't think he's parsing heresy. He's saying, yeah, love your enemy. And so are we supposed to love them? Yes. Are we supposed to do good to them if we have the opportunity and to, to bless them and to, and to pray for them? Yeah, but that doesn't mean that we, and I want to be clear here, that doesn't mean we remain in an unsafe situation. The reason Jesus calls us to forgive people who've hurt us is yes, he can use it to reach those people because they're trying to scratch their head about how you can forgive them. But more importantly, one of the reasons that Jesus calls you to forgive others that have hurt you is for your soul care. It's for your heart. It's to protect you from bitterness. Because when you harbor bitterness and resentment against people who've hurt you, it's like drinking poison hoping they die. It doesn't work that way. And so you, you have to forgive those people who've hurt you. 
But what's being clear here in this word abuse, you know, this, this mistreatment is Jesus is not saying you have to remain in an unsafe environment repeatedly being abused. That's not what Jesus is saying to those who are in an unsafe situation. You've got to get out of that situation. He's not saying check your brain out when it comes to trusting those people. Use discernment, use wisdom, whether you can trust these people anymore. So, so that's a whole different situation, but we don't want that word to lead people to think the wrong way. That Jesus is saying, if you're being abused right now, stay in that abusive scenario and, and it'll just turn around. No, you, you need to love those people. You need to somehow find a way to the power of the Holy Spirit to do good to them, but you've got to get safe. And you've got to use wisdom in that situation. And one of the ways you can, in a stunning way, love those people who've mistreated you is to pray for them. Prayer is placing your adversary in God's hands. You know, one of the things, if, if you've ever read through the Psalms, okay, if you read through the Psalms, many of those Psalms are written by the man King David, right? Second king of Israel, man after God's own heart. I love reading through the Psalms. I love reading about David because he's super real. And you'll see David, like in one Psalm, he'll be like, oh God, I love you and you're amazing. And he's like, break the arms of my enemies. I'm like, I like this guy. <laughs> I can relate to this guy. And that's what we see is we, we see oftentimes David in the Psalms starts to pray for his adversaries. He prays for his enemies. He, he prays that God would rescue him from them. He, he prays for justice. He prays that God will step in and do something. He prays that God will turn them to good. And so he's a great model of, of living this out. And so when we pray for an enemy, we, we can ask for justice. We can ask for wrongs to be made right. We can pray for accountability. Um, but don't forget, when you pray for someone, you're also praying that God would do good in their life. And so I think this is what Jesus is getting at. Are, are we empowered by Christ enough that we can actually pray good into someone's life who has hurt us? And so in that moment, we're interceding on that person's behalf, a lot of times for their greatest need, which is Christ and Christ to do something in their life. So praying for someone who's hurt you, mistreated you, that's stunning. That's a stunning kind of love. And it's going to catch people off guard. And it's going to be this demonstration of Christ's power at work in our lives. And so let's just make sure we're on the same page. Jesus tells us to do what? Love our enemies. enemies. He says, I'm going to give you three ways to do that. First way is do what? Do good to them. Second, bless them. Third, pray for them. And just to make sure that we're tracking, now Jesus will give us examples. He wanted to make sure the audience was following along with him. So he says, well, let me give you some scenarios. Let me give you some examples of that. So look, look again at verse 27. Jesus says, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And then he says, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Now Jesus is giving us actual examples. Let's start with the striking on the cheek, because sometimes we only see the shallow and immediate um, application of that. Does it apply to uh, absorbing a blow that someone has delivered in anger um, or, or stupidity? Yes. Absolutely. If someone hits us, it means that we uh, are not going to get sucked into responding to violence by violence. Now, this isn't, this isn't a matter of, Jesus isn't teaching them always have to be passive. This isn't a teaching that's against self-defense or against like being involved in the military or anything like that. This is a personal, ethical application. It's not governmental. 
It's not political. It's just saying when this happens in your life, uh, th- this is an option you have to respond. You can absorb it because you're not going to get sucked into returning violence for violence. You're going to let vengeance be the Lord. Now, I used to joke around, um, sort of joke around, that it's like, hey, if you hit my cheek, and I turn the other cheek, and you hit that cheek, I'm out of cheeks, now it's on. All right? <laughs> but I think that kind of violates the spirit of what Jesus is trying to get to here. Because if you actually dig down a little deeper, here's the reality. If you, if you look at the, the same teaching that Jesus is teaching in Matthew 5, on the Sermon on the Mount, he gets a little more specific. He says, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek... Well, if you need to strike someone on the right cheek, which hand are you using? Now think about that for a second. How many of you are left-handers? Raise your left hand. I know my son's in here. He's left-handed. Okay, got some left-handers. Okay, a minority of us tend to be left-handed. How many of you are right-handers? Raise your right hand. Okay. Some of you didn't raise your hand. You're confused. I guess you're ambidextrous. (laughs) If, If... Someone is striking you on the right cheek. They're not using their left hand. They're using their dominant hand. And most people are dominantly right-handed, which means they are actually backhanding you. It's a backhand. Well, what does a backhand communicate? A backhand communicates an insult. It's a shame. They're trying to degrade you. They're trying to say, I'm superior, you're inferior. It's, It's an attempt to put someone in their place and to dominate over someone. And what Jesus is saying here is if someone were to try to do that to you, whether it is a physical strike, if they hit that cheek, you just turn the other one and go, you missed one. You missed one. I don't hear any amens, by the way. (laughs) We're going like, what? It's against the grain. It's stunning. And what Jesus is saying is we should be able to absorb insults. We shouldn't get suckered into this immediate, like insult for insult, violence for violence type of life. That's not the life that a Christ follower is, is, exemplifies a Christ follower. And so there's this, there's this degrading, there's this shaming, there's this insulting, and basically we're saying, you know, Jesus sure took a lot for us. He took spit in the face, he took blows, he took beatings, he took the crucifixion. What's a slap? And how much slap, how much is a slap really going to hurt if we can absorb insults and shaming? And so Jesus is calling us to something stronger. It's easy to give in and lose your, lose your, um, your, you know, your attitude and your anger and strike back. That, that's easy. It's harder to restrain. And Jesus is saying, you can do it, though, if you're in me. But then what's with the cloak and the tunic thing? Okay, what's, what's up with the clothes? Well, in, in ancient Middle East, the classic you know, outfit was a tunic as an interior uh, garment. And usually it's a, a lighter cottony garment that's, you know, elbow to wrist length, knee to ankle length on the inside. And then the outside was a cloak. And the cloak was sometimes decorated. It had a little more of an attractive appearance, but it was also thick. And so it was worn when it was cold because it was more of a robe that fit over the tunic. It was the exterior garment. And at nighttime, it would double up as a blanket. So a lot of people would just, you know, wrap themselves in their cloak to stay warm. And so what you see taking place here is Jesus is saying, if someone takes your cloak, your outer garment, just give them your inner garment too. Translate it for us. If they take your jacket, give them your shirt. It's like, well, that's just really peculiar. Like, that's just really funky. Like, what is that about? And I think that's conveying two things for us. One, we are of a heavenly kingdom, which means we have no problem releasing the possessions of an earthly kingdom. We're not going to clutch onto everything that this world has to offer us and just, you know, we can part with that easily. But again, the deeper meaning here, one of the customs of the time was that if you owed someone money or labor or whatever it was and you weren't paying back, they could come to your home and then they could actually take your cloak as collateral and hold on to your cloak. 
Now, according to the Old Testament, they were to give it back to you so that you had something at night so you didn't freeze, okay? But a lot of times, because of the oppression, the mistreatment, or just the cruelty, this common custom became something that was used in an abusive way or an enemy would leverage to his advantage. And what Jesus is saying is that they come to get your cloak, let them have it, and on top of that, give them your tunic if they're trying to oppress you like that. And what's going to happen is, if someone is walking by... And there's two men standing outside of a little house. One guy's naked, and the other guy's holding all his clothes. Who's going to look bad? <laughs> the guy holding all the clothes. Obviously, his oppression, obviously all that he's doing is going to be very evident. And so there's a little bit of a, of a, of a turning of the tables that's taking place there. But again, it's in the mindset that says... I'm following Christ. I'm not, I'm not going to um, return insult to insult. I'm not going to fight over this. I'm going to yield to the Lord. I'm not going to repay an evil for an evil. Also, he goes on in verse 30. He says, give to the one who begs, to the one who takes your stuff and doesn't return it. By the way, this isn't talking about taking by force. We're not talking about getting robbed here. We're talking about an agreement that has been taken with um, consent. And so if someone comes and, and they borrow money or they borrow something they need to use and, and uh, they're not giving it back, you never gave it with the intent that they had to give it back because it doesn't own you. Again, people of a heavenly kingdom can part easily with things of an earthly kingdom. And so there's a spirit here that Jesus is digging to. Like, look, if someone comes and they, they take your money, they take your stuff, you're like, okay, I hope to get it back, but if I don't, I'm loving my enemy. I'm loving my enemy. Now, obviously, Jesus is using extreme examples to convey some principles. And so we don't want to get hung up on like being super literal about these extreme examples. But we do want to hunker down on the principles of what this life looks like, this, this life of giving. You know, there's a quote from a woman named Amy Mar um, Carmichael. She was a missionary in India for 55 years. 1867 to 1951, she said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. And I think that's what Jesus was getting to here in these last examples. Like, if you're going to love your enemy, it's going to require giving at some point. Because it's not truly love if it doesn't have some sort of gift attached to it. And then, of course, Jesus summarizes with what we're familiar with as the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you want done unto you. And so he's, he's summarizing going, just treat people the way you want to be treated. So he helps us understand what he's asking us to do, love your enemies. He gives us three ways we can live that out, do good to them, bless them, pray for them. He kind of walks through some examples of what that would look like. Even though they're from 2,000 years ago, we can get the main principles. And then this is what I love. Then Jesus cuts to the heart. He, he gives us the why. Like, why would you do this? Like, like what's the gain in doing this? And so he elaborates on that. Look with me at verse 32, Luke 6. He says, If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend from those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Let's just stop. What Jesus is saying is, if you just love others who love you and do good to others who are going to do good back to you and just lend because you know you're going to get it back, how is that any different than what the world's doing? How is, how, how is a Christ follower looking any different than someone who doesn't know Christ? There's nothing extraordinary about this. this, this is, there's nothing exemplary about this. This is just normal. It's not stunning. 
So he's saying, in order to live this way, it's going to look different. It's going to go against the grain. And then he cuts to the heart, like what he says in verse 35. He says, but love your enemies, do good, lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Jesus is saying, look, you've received mercy when you didn't deserve it. Like, we did not deserve God's mercy. We don't deserve it. We're the, we're the ungrateful ones. We're the evil ones. The inclinations of our heart are evil, right? So we're the ones that receive this mercy. Now he's saying, I've given you this mercy, even though you didn't deserve it. Now tag your it, go give it to others. And he says it's going to benefit you. Did you notice that? What benefit is that to you? What benefit is that to you? What credit is that to you? There are benefits and and blessings that come with living this way. I mean, there's rewards. It says your reward will be great. Well, what are some of our rewards? Well, God is our ultimate reward, a relationship with God. Also, God's pleasure and joy over us is a reward. The joy we get in just obeying and seeing the fruit of that is a reward. God's favor and blessing in our life is a reward. Being faithful is a reward. The joy of evidencing that we're God's children is a reward. God's character coming out through us is a reward. Freedom from bitterness is a reward. A glimpse of heaven on earth now is a reward. There's so much to benefit us. Like Jesus saying, I'm doing this so it benefits you if you do this. So we need to live that out. We need to respond that way. And then he uses the ultimate reward. He says, you will be called sons of the Most High. See, he's not saying you have to do these things to become children of God. He's saying you do these things because your children of God. And when we live out this kind of tough teaching, you, you might get one of the greatest compliments that you will ever receive while you're breathing oxygen in this state, which is you look like your dad. You look like your heavenly father. You act like him. You have his characteristics. Can you think of any greater compliment than I see God's character coming out of you? This is the great reward that Jesus has for us. Stunning. It's a stunning love. And God's called us to live out that stunning love in the form of loving our enemies. And when we do, it demonstrates the power of Christ in our lives. Now, looking at Brant Jean and what he said and the gesture he made of embracing Amber Geiger, who took the life of his brother, is very compelling. But honestly, it's going to be a little bit of a disconnect for most of us because uh, most of us, if not all of us, will probably never lose someone as tragically and horrifically as the Jean family has. Just eating ice cream and someone comes in and shoots your loved one, right? But there are other situations that might come to our mind, other situations we can relate to. And as I was reading this text a few weeks ago and I was thinking about loving your enemies, uh, a woman in our church came to my mind. This is a woman who for like, two going on three years, have watched her actually live this out. Damaging situation in her life, divorce, unfaithfulness, and it's just splintered um, her family. And when it would be easy for her uh, her heart to get hard and to get bitter, she just tried to walk through her pain and walk through the difficulty being obedient to this text. 
And so I asked her if she would share her story, and she, she wrote it down, and we just summarized it. We asked one of our other staff people to just read it. This is going to be an audio clip. And just because we want to be sensitive to her uh, life and, and her privacy, it's just anonymous. But this is, one of, this is one of our family members who's just going to take a few minutes to share her story of what this means to love your enemy from her perspective. So let's take a listen. My husband and I had been married for 16 years, facing many trials, experiencing joyful times, and loving each other through it all. So it came as quite a shock to me when I discovered he was having an affair. Even worse, 10 days later, he made his choice to live with her rather than to try to work things out with me, and he moved out. I can't completely describe the grief I experienced. It was a deep, deep sorrow that was almost physically painful. For months, I had trouble eating. I cried more tears than I thought my body could produce. Every ordinary day that followed was for me a challenging hill to climb. And even each pleasant experience had a connection to my history with my husband and was now tinged with brokenheartedness. But I love the one true God. One question kept coming to the surface of my mind. I couldn't shake it. How will the way I handle this situation be different from the way the world handles this situation? I knew it shouldn't look the same. In fact, it should be drastically different. The Holy Spirit lives in me, for goodness sake. What did I already know from the Word of God? Forgive as God has forgiven me. Vengeance is the Lord's, not mine. Live peaceably with all, if possible. Do not let bitterness take root. And love my enemies. Here's where the rubber meets the road because it was time to determine the way that godly principles would play out in real life moments. Was my husband my enemy? Perhaps. Was his mistress my enemy? Her pursuit of his heart was very much like a strike across my cheek, a taking of my cloak, an evil committed against me. I felt I could rightly classify her as an enemy. And God tells us to love our enemies, to do good to them, to bless them, and to pray for them. The Holy Spirit convicted my heart to do the same. Don't get me wrong, I didn't suddenly have warm and fuzzy feelings about her. I had to wrestle in prayer with the Lord to be able to forgive in such a way that my heart did not demand payment from her. But God did that work in me. In fact, the first time I ever met her, I told her how much damage she had done, that she had changed the entire course of my future and that what she and my husband had done was evil. But then I told her I had forgiven her, that I did not wish her ill, and that I was hoping to live in peace with her. She cried. She didn't understand. She told me she didn't expect me to forgive her. I walked away from that moment so glad that I had done things God's way. It felt like I had won the first and maybe the hardest battle. It felt like I was giving my future to the Lord instead of trying to control it myself. I began to pray for her, not every day, and not easily. I wasn't sure exactly what to say or ask for. I came to the conclusion that I could honestly pray in this way, believing it was in accordance with God's will. Father, deliver justice for me. Correct my husband and this woman. But please, please end with mercy. I do not wish to see them perish. I wish to see them choose new life in Christ. Use me in any way to accomplish this. Amen. Isn't God so good? 
He is faithful to His children. He has been faithful to me. God's prescriptions for how I should interact with this woman were not only meant to benefit her, but also meant to benefit me. I would say that the most wonderful thing is that God has made my heart soft. Sadness still strikes because of the loss and hurt, but He has graciously kept out any bitterness and anger. I have enormous amounts of peace. My joy is intact. I have hope for my future. Only God can do that in a life, and only by writing His laws on the hearts of His people so that their hearts become like His heart and love what He loves. None of this is over, even two and a half years later. My husband and I are recently divorced, and he is still in a relationship with the same woman. I still have to choose forgiveness every day. I still have to ask God to give me wisdom to live out the gospel in difficult situations. I still have to decide if I will love my enemy. Please pray that I would remain faithful to God and continue to operate like a true Christian in whom dwells the very spirit of the living God. What an example of just living new. Real hurt, real pain, and just a real attempt to let Christ help her love her enemies. Maybe you can't relate to what caused the pain, but maybe you can relate to the pain. Jesus calls us all to the same. To love our enemies. It's stunning when that happens. And it demonstrates Christ's power at work in our lives. And I've got many stories from my own life of how I failed this. This is still a hard area for me to walk out, but oh, look at the time. I can't share any of those stories right now. (laughs) But we've all got them. And so what do you do from here? Well, first and foremost, if you're sitting here or watching online and you don't have a relationship with God, you've never placed your faith in Christ, that's your first step. You've got to identify that because of sin, because of rebellion, you're actually an enemy of God. He doesn't want you to be. He just wants to know if you're going to stay an enemy or not. And so if you're ready to surrender to Christ and to believe in Him and receive the forgiveness of sin that He offers you through His death on the cross, you've got to take that bold, courageous step of faith. And some of you need to do that today. And just say, Jesus, I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to follow you. If you do that in your program, there's a response card that says, uh, box there that you, you've given your life to Christ. Check that box. Rip it off here in a little bit. Turn it in and we'll get in touch with you. Give us an email or an address and we'll get in touch with you and tell you what it means to follow Christ and, and uh, walk with you and encourage you as you're doing that. For those, those of us who are ready to take this serious, I hope that you can write down some notes here in your journal, your notes, note on your phone. Three questions that we need to answer here as we walk out of here with the desire to love our enemies. Really no desire. It's a desire to be obedient to our enemies. First is, what's one way I can do good to them? Think of that person. What's one action step? What's one practical way you can do good to that person? Just write that down. Think about that. What's one way you can bless them with words, whether it's a conversation you need to have, a note you need to write, a phone call you need to make, that you can, through the power of Christ, say something authentically good to these people? Thirdly, what's one way you can pray for them? What's a need they have in their life? Maybe they need Christ. How can you intercede for these people? What's a prayer you can pray? And so I encourage you to take this very difficult teaching 
Surrender to the Lord. Let's all try to live it together. Surrender to Christ so that he can demonstrate his power at work in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today and thanks for the reminder of what you've told us to do. You didn't suggest it. You didn't say, hey, it's an option. You, you really called us to this. And Lord, it's difficult. It's challenging. We don't want to love our adversaries. We don't want to love enemies. But we do want to be like you. We can't say both. We can't say we want to be like you and at the same time say we don't want to love our enemies. You loved us when we were your enemies. You died for us and you rose for us and you've invited us into relationship. Lord, help us with wisdom, the power of the Holy Spirit to know how to love our enemies the way you loved us. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, we all sit together.